0: Are you loving the BinderCast? Come experience the magic in person at BinderCon.com. Our next conference will be in New York City, October 29th and 30th. And you can get your tickets at shop.BinderCon.com.
1: There's no such thing as like women's writing
2: or writing for women.
1: I was polite, but I just went for it when so many people were just
2: saying no. I had the luxury of writing what i cared about the most for a long time
1: i want to publish
2: like amazing
0: brilliant urgent strange innovative fiction
2: think about every scene ending with a bitch slap
0: i'm lux Trump. and i'm lee stein and this is the bindercast a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers this week we're talking about what's often thought of as women's writing genres like soap operas fan fiction and fairy tales which never seem to get the same respect that's given to serious male writing you know in thinking about this it's funny because if you ask me like well do you watch soap operas i would say absolutely not i had this knee-jerk reaction but when i really think about it there's a lot of movies and tv shows that i love that really could be considered soap operas. And I'm not even talking about, like, it's a secret soap opera. I mean, I love the movie Cruel Intentions. I love Soap, which started out as, like, a parody of a soap opera, but by the end of the fourth season or however many seasons it was, I cry every time I watch that ending, and I've seen it many times. Uh, And likewise, Soap Dish, again, like, quote-unquote parody of soap operas that's very dramatic and soap opera itself. And I love all of these things, yet for some reason when I hear the word soap opera, I just immediately have a negative feeling.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a disparaged genre, but I too love soap operas, though I would never call them that. Um, I remember when I started watching The Affair, I couldn't stop watching it and I didn't have my laptop charger and I was trying to calculate how many episodes I could download and how much battery that would use and then how much battery would be left to watch the episodes.
0: (laughs) It's really good. Yeah. Also, I should say I love Jane the Virgin, which is unabashedly a telenovela. But I feel like when I when I really think about this, I'm like, oh, we're conditioned to think of soap operas and the women who watch soap operas as just like, oh, it's a stay at home mom in a house coat who just has nothing to do with her life. And this is not about stay at home moms. This is about this vision that we've been given about like, oh, the kind of woman who likes this is dumb and doesn't have anything going on.
1: Right. It's like the idea that you aren't smart enough to watch something better. But like, why is that? Like, why should women be shamed for like liking
0: plot? (laughs) Well, we shouldn't, but it all comes down to internalized misogyny. This whole topic came up a bunch with our guest this week, who is the brilliant and fantastic Danielle Page. She's an award-winning TV writer who got her start on soap operas writing for Guiding Light, and she's also a best-selling author. You may have heard of her YA series, Dorothy Must Die. She's done a lot of really amazing stuff, but like many of us, she actually found her calling as a writer way, way, way before she was writing professionally back when she was still just a kid?
2: Oh, well, when I was five, uh, no, I I know. no, just to start at the beginning, I literally, as a kid, I always wanted to write, I think I wrote my first short story, like, did you guys do this in school where you had to write a little story and they would, like, bind it and yes. put water, wallpaper on the outside of it? Well, mine was about a unicorn and a princess. I have no idea how good it is. I need to dig it up. Um, and then my senior year of college, I took a dramatic writing class and I also took... A couple of internships and uh, one of them was guiding light and one of them was paper magazine and I was just not cool enough for paper magazine and I was pretty cool but it just was a different cool than I was and I was like in the web department like fact checking all day and then at a soap opera I was researching story and hanging out with cute actors and I thought, okay, well this is what I'm gonna do and when I graduated I started working in the production office and I worked my, my way up to be writer's assistant. And um, a couple of years later, I got to try writing scripts. So that's how I started. Uh, and I loved it. And uh, then Soap started to die, which was, there were, I think, maybe 11 when I started. And there are four now. Oof. So I had to figure out, like, what's my next move? And I always liked writing for kids. So, like, on the show. And I thought, well, maybe YA. Um, and I wound up writing a pilot for MTV that was about Ivy League kids and it didn't make it, but it got it. It sold, so that was a big feather in my cap. And um, then Dorothy kind of just happened. I ran into an editor at a party, and I just uh, we were talking, and and next thing you know, I'm writing books. So it really it was like kind of a surprising journey. I did not expect either soaps or books, but I love it. I think for for me, for Guiding Light, I, I literally had watched it when I was a kid, and my grandmother watched it, and my mom watched it. And that's why I wanted to work there because I literally was, like, looking in this binder at Columbia. And there was, like – and at Columbia at the time, they had computers for, like, everything else. Like, if you wanted to be a business person, then, like, there was a file for that and recruiting. But if you wanted to do do entertainment, there was just a binder with, like, loose sheets sheets of paper with, like, do you want to work here? Um, So when I saw it, I was like, I actually know this world a little bit. And um, by the time I started writing, it was like those voices are kind of in your head, I feel like. So it was just – the I'd say the real adjustment was when the head writers would change. It would be, like, one writer might want to do clones, and then the next writer might want to do ghost stories. And at the time, I didn't realize it was, like, that I would always been writing fantasy in a way. Like, I felt like it was super real. Like, not it was making the unbelievable seem believable, but it was still within the realm of possibility, except for the ghosts and the clones. Like, it just felt like I was still writing kind of normal people. And as a writer, I enjoyed it as... It's just the challenge of writing that quickly and writing that much. I wrote more scripts in my 20s than anyone else I know, like other than other soap writers, because I had to write a script every, every week. So in terms of writing practice, like that muscle, I used it and I got to write all sorts of crazy things that I never would have thought of myself at the time. And I, I think that's a skill.
0: Writing a lot and writing quickly weren't the only skills Danielle picked up at Guiding Light. She also learned a good deal about structure and pacing and picked up some tips that she still uses for writing novels today.
2: I actually had a soap teacher who literally said, "Like, think about every scene ending with a bitch slap. Like, it can be an actual bitch slap or, like, an emotional, like, just a an emotional bitch slap. So, I mean, like, the bitch slap is great because I think that every scene should build to something. Whether And that that is, like, I, I try to do that in every chapter. I think of chapters as scenes still. It just gave me the ability to write a lot of different voices because I had to put myself in the seats of so many different people. There's so many characters on a soap canvas. I think my very first show, it was my very first scene that I wrote was for a uh, couple in a hot tub like and they were in their 60s and I was I was so proud of the scene and my all my friends came over and I was like I got to write but I got to be like a 60 year old guy or a 15 year old girl or um and every race and color and thing like I learned a lot honestly like I can't even um I think in terms of story structure I think in terms of how a tv show is made in terms of writing in general uh, about pacing um I learned a lot
0: so were you – when you were writing soaps, did you plan on staying in them? Would you have stayed in them longer had Guiding Light not gone off the air? Or? I
2: think I would have. I honestly – like I, I I can say that I'm one of those people that, that maybe I don't – didn't dream big enough for myself in the sense that like I just – I love the job. I thought it was so much fun and the money's good and I was enjoying myself and I was like I could do this forever. And I didn't like start writing another screenplay on this size because the schedule is so – So not grueling, but it's just so constant, like you don't really have breaks. So I was happily doing it. And... I think I would have done it for as long as I could. And I know lots of writers who have, and I, I enjoyed it. And I always had friends who were like, you know, you should start writing, working a book. You should be doing other stuff. And I remember directors telling me, it's like, you know, the soaps are not going to last forever. And you need to like, you should have a screenplay. You should do something else. And I just, I like, yeah, and eventually I'll get around to it. But I didn't get around to it. So I kind of had to get kicked out of that nest to like realize it's like, oh, wait, there are other things for me. Danielle found
0: an incredibly supportive community in soaps, a community that still continues to support her today. But outside her soap friends, well, not everyone in her life really understood or supported her choice to go work at Guiding Light.
2: I remember when I first started doing it um, and my friends, it's like either of one or two camps. It's either like, oh, that's so cool. They're like, really? You, you went to Columbia with me. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Um, but I think that in terms of storytelling, it is kind of a marvel that they can keep coming up with stuff. Like, uh like their shows like guiding light was seventy five when it went off the air maybe seventy eight by that time wow. like that is like a history like it it reflects the times it reflects so much that happened and it was it actually helped fuel the television industry like for it like the afternoons were spent for women like watching this stuff while they're doing their housework. or I mean I think it's a part of our history and I will be very 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 sad. When they're not on the air, so I hope that they continue. And I also think that serialized storytelling takes so much. I mean, like, I think that what we're looking at in primetime, they're soaps, and you can they can be highbrow soaps, but they're still soaps. Like, I feel like there's a little bit like West Wing was a soap, it was a really well written soap, but it's a political soap opera, so is House of Cards. Like, we we derive these things, but there is value there.
0: Orange is the new black is definitely a soap.
2: Yes, and it is lauded and it is wonderful, but I think that the roots are there.
1: So I have this friend, Catherine Lacey, who once told me that there's no such thing as guilty pleasure. There's only pleasure. And I love that, and I use it in my defense every time I'm asked about how much I watch The Bachelor franchise. How Uh, much do you watch The Bachelor franchise? (laughs) I watch every season, but I do not watch Bachelor in Paradise. I just can't get into it. Do you watch Bachelorette? Yes. Um, And I also write poems based on the show. And it started off as like a fun experiment, but it's actually like, I think they're like surprisingly profound poems, if I may say so myself. And um it all culminated in the highlight of my career which was uh New York Magazine asking me to write a poem in honor of the franchise's 20th anniversary for the cut. So
0: I am now the poet laureate
1: of the bachelor and I'm not ashamed.
0: Nice. So well you found a way to elevate the bachelor, Danielle found a way to elevate fan fiction. So uh we talked to her about that next and I will say I was anxious to ask her about fan fiction because I feel like it's such a loaded term that I just didn't want to offend her. But thankfully, she is totally happy to She's talk very about it She's very cool. She's very cool. So I'm going to bring up a controversial term, which is fan fiction. I feel like fan fiction gets derided a lot or it's treated as as like a lesser thing. But in some ways, I think Dorothy Must Die could be seen as like very well written, very well done fan fiction, in that it's inspired by something that existed before, and I mean, I don't know i I know you know fifty shades of gray also gets derided because it was inspired by Twilight, and granted that is not as well written as any of this, <laughs> but I think it's kind of interesting to talk about this interplay of like well, if you're doing good work, does it matter that it is inspired by someone else, and I just think it's interesting. The way, especially the way that like fan fiction is often associated with women the way it keeps getting treated as like quote unquote lesser
2: um, I think that bomb said that he thought of uh, thought of oz as a as a as an American fairy tale, and fairy tales are taken and rewritten an oral tradition or another tradition over and over and over again, so I feel like i 'm doing the same thing. I think that we. Um, I, I think Shakespeare's been retold a million times. I think there's a million different stories that we like to tell and and explore and change. And I I, I don't have any issue with being fan fiction. I I, I accept it, embrace it, enjoy it. Like, I, I think that... And when I hear about other people, it's like, there's a robot Cinderella. I want to go and I want to go to there. I want to read that. Like, why not? Um, and I think as a reader, I guess I've always felt like, don't you read and wonder what else like what what else and what if and that's what I get to do and I I never thought I'd be part of the you know Oz lexicon in a way and it's like there's something kind of amazing about like you know people reading me or people reading like Gregory Maguire or or that it exists and there are these other stories to tell and I don't think that we're we're not tired of Oz yet. If you do
0: a remix of Shakespeare you're smart if you do a remix of a Greek tragedy, like, you're so thoughtful. But if you do a tribute to something that's more recent, then it's like, oh, well, that's just low culture.
2: Yeah, well, but I think even fairy tales get, like, a, get a little bit of a um, bad name, like, Once Upon a Time, which I think is fabulous. But I think there's something there. Like, I think we do – we trash we trash it, and I don't know why. I don't know – if, but honestly, I wonder if, it, if it's a female thing, like – the things that were that are getting trashed are like female driven stories. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I
0: do think part of it's like if a woman is if it's associated with women, it's often viewed as like lesser. Like, right. You know, twi- I'm not gonna say Twilight's the greatest written book, but there's a lot of books that are You know, The Da Vinci Code was also not that well written.
2: It's popcorn. I mean, it's good popcorn. and, And to some, Twilight is good popcorn. And to me, like, when I think of Twilight, when it came along, I was like, oh, God, oh, this is, like, this is this generation's vampire movie or vampire book. Because we had, like, Lost Boys and and I'm dating myself, but like, you know what I mean? It was like, it's, there's a, pike. yeah, there's like a, there's a void. And I think that there's that moment when you're a teenager and you get your first vampire and you, you know, learn that he loves you. So, <laughs> well, you know, and I think that that, that, that she fulfilled that. For, and she also broke, and I'm a fan in the sense that she broke open YA in a way that it wasn't before it it's she did for YA in a way what, you know, it's a Harry Potter of, of, of that, generation. So let's like, I, I celebrate that.
0: Yeah. And no. there, I
2: think there's room at the table for everything. Like who doesn't like a swoony romance or a love triangle? I come from soaps. So I, 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 you know, no shame there.
0: Coming from soaps gave Danielle more than just a solid appreciation for a good swoony romance. It also gave her the skills she needed to take someone else's work, like, for instance, L. Frank Baum's Oz, and transform it into something all her own, while still staying true to the source material.
2: It was a good, I think, training ground to write Dorothy, so that I had this, like, I was used to doing that. Like, like taking something that existed and making it my own, but still staying within the character. Um, I think Dorothy's a little different, because I got to, like, push the boundaries and flip the script. Um, and I think there's, it's really hard to, I had a moment, I think, when I started with Dorothy, could I really write this? Because it felt a little bit more sacred to me. I was such an Oz fan as a a little kid. Like I watched it over and over and over and over again. So I think it was like, could I do this? And honestly, I saw like the little goth munchkin in the middle of the yellow brick road. And it was like, I can like, that's what it's going to be like in my Oz. So I think that there's just that moment where you have to say this is my own and run with it, but still try to to keep some some semblance of what was there before, so that it's still recognizable.
0: So when you were writing this and like doing your world building, how much how much was uh, taken? How much was directly staying loyal to the original Oz? How much is you?
2: I think I still... I think I take what works for me. Um, I mean, there's not a world in which, you know, Dorothy is not wearing those shoes. Um, But beyond that, I think anything else is fair game. I like to... Like If a character changed from the original, I'd like it to have an emotional basis or a good reason. Like I liked the idea that the things that the characters used to want have now... It's kind of an overcorrection. They got the things that they wanted and that now what? So if you were the 10-man and you finally got the heart that you wanted now you love Dorothy a little bit too much or if you are the the, I'm going to forget all of my characters Uh, if you're the I do it every time like it's like can I ask the audience now who is the other no Um, the cowardly lion you know he's now kind of steroidy. the um, 10 man is like a mad scientist so it's like they wanted these things so much they have them but it's I'm always interested in what happens when you had you did not have the power and now you do are you going to be the person you hope to be, or you're gonna be a bully. Like and and they are not necessarily bullies, but they have they've gone a little too far. Um and Dorothy, actually Dorothy would be a bully, so
0: I one of the things I like about I, well this is specifically in one of the prequels, I feel like your Dorothy prequel, you get very sympathetic with a character who becomes very evil. Do you do you feel like writing for Soaps, where there are so many villains, help with that, or...?
2: I would say yes, and I would say, I would quote something that I always say about villains, and I think I learned this from Soaps, is that that a villain does not know that he, that he or she is a villain. They are just a normal person who makes different choices than, than you would. Like, they they are just, you have to justify what they're doing, and Dorothy believes that what she's doing is right. It's right for her. She may be doing evil things, but she doesn't know that they're evil, and I think that that's, like... an Someone who's evil is a person too, and they have their own motivations and drive. Like in real life, when someone does something bad, very few people are twirling their mustache like, "Oh yay, I'm doing this bad thing." Um, with some, you know, exceptions in our scary modern world. So, um, I think that everyone, people believe that what they're doing is right. So that that helps me a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Again, like because you're taking beloved childhood figures and twisting them, it's kind of fascinating to see how you do that. Without straying too far from the original character like you have an evil tin man and you explore like how that happened but you can still see the thread back to it where it's not like oh what.
2: Well what I like too, and what was really important to me was to make sure that like for Dorothy she gets a moment where you see where she's made she's already you see the seeds are kind of planted but you also see her making the turn. Um, but I think that um, I what it really mattered to me was that, that the people still they still had friends like they changed but they stuck together like they might they like Dorothy doesn't look at them in the same way as she did a million years ago but she doesn't think about ditching them she thinks that she's she still has that bit of herself and I I like that Danielle
0: will be wrapping up the Dorothy Must Die series this year but that doesn't mean she's done with dark fairy tales her next series Stealing Snow. Debuts this fall.
2: I call it Grown Up Frozen, but it's like if you've ever read the original Snow Queen story, it's a lot different than Frozen. There no, there's no like sister saving sister thing. It's really out uh, this uh, crazy Snow Queen. Kidnaps a couple, kidnaps a guy, and and his uh, friend comes and saves saves him. Basically, so the fairy tale itself is only a few pages long. So I I got to like really like, Dorothy. There's so much source material. There's 13 books. But in this case, there's like a 20 page story from Hans Christian Andersen or from the fairy tale world. Um, and so, what I did was something completely different. So, you meet Snow, and she's in a mental hospital in the upstate New York, and she discovers that she's the snow queen um, or now a snow princess. And um, a crazy orderly shows up in her room and tells her, like, Want to, if you run away and cross this tree, then on the other side of the tree, everyone will kneel for you and you will be a queen. And she um, she believes him and um, runs away. And when she gets to the other side of the tree, she discovers that her, um, her father is a snow king and he wants to kill her. So it's a, it's a little dark and scary and twisty and fun.
0: If you've been keeping track of all of Danielle's projects, you've probably noticed she's got a lot on her plate. Between all the novels and novellas she's basically writing two or three full books every single year. So, how exactly does she get it all done
2: i 'm on a crazy schedule because having two series means that you just don't leave your apartment um so I try to write like three or four chapters a week. I try to keep a normal work day, only it starts a little bit later than than probably your normal work day um, I probably start around like I get up and I start writing around noon and I keep writing until like nine or something. Um, and um, I take a break for lunch and for dinner, but I, I just write right through. Um, I usually go to my favorite coffee shop every day, print my pages and read over them and edit. And then I go back home and I keep writing. Um, and sometimes I write late at night if I if the muse strikes me.
0: Do you set like a a word count goal do you say like I want to get to this place in the story how do you decide when you've done enough
2: I think it's usually I try to do like th- two or three chapters a week just because I need to get it done um, I might I'd probably do a draft in four months ideally and then I will have a break while the the editor reads but usually during that break I'm working on a novella or um, because each book series has novellas uh, Dorothy has three per book um, I think the Snow Queen's going to have two per book um, so it's just like right now I'm going to finish copy edits and then I will go back to the novella writing while my editor reads and then I will start working on, on the next No Queen book. So it's just back and forth and back and forth.
1: I honestly don't know how she does that. And it makes me feel like the biggest slacker for taking like three and a half years to write one book.
0: I haven't even written one book at all. So <laughs> I'm a bigger slacker than you. You're so behind books. I know. I know. Um, But, you know, and I will say I am a huge fan of Danielle's books and they're amazing. But this is just why we're all so in awe of her. If you'd like to hear more from Danielle, you
1: can check out the video from her keynote conversation with YA author Libba Bray at our website, nyc.bindercon.com, and go to the videos page.
0: You can follow Danielle Page on Twitter at Danielle M. Page. That's P-A-I-G-E. And if you're curious about the Dorothy Must Die books, you can check them out for free at audibletrial.com bindercast. The Bindercast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Follow us on Twitter at TheBinderCast. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to BinderCon.com or follow us at BinderCon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Albtraum and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lye and Henry Malofsky. Our theme music is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Quiche.